hard for me to believe uh, that this year is over. My first year here um, as the campus minister. And I just want to tell all of y'all, thank y'all. Um, it has been so much fun. And not just the like Mississippi State sports part of it. That has been a great part of it. Um, but uh, y'all have been the best part, I promise. So uh, I really do hope you've had a great year. I hope that as you've come in and out of RUF... Uh, that you've found it to be a place and this night on Thursday nights to be a time uh, where you can be encouraged and uh, grow in your faith, wrestle with your doubts, wrestle with the things that you're struggling with. Uh, that's what we want this place to be. And that doesn't happen without y'all. So thank y'all. Um, and as we do every week, we are going to end uh, our semester in the Bible. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 this evening. Remember last week, uh, we ended last week at the beginning uh, of Jacob's story. And if you remember, Jacob's story uh, was that he had swindled his way uh, to the firstborn blessing. He had swindled his father and his brother by stealing that firstborn blessing. It was promised to him. God had promised that blessing would be his. But Jacob and his mother took it in their own hands uh, and they stole it. But even in the midst of that, uh, of his real sin against his father and, and, and all that that involved, Isaac, his father, knew as he was trying to process the confusion. You remember that Isaac said, yes, and indeed, he will be blessed. Well, tonight we come back into Jacob's life years and years later. He's years in exile, years away from home working for his mean uh, uncle Laban. He's been married for years uh, to two sisters because he really wanted to marry the pretty one. Uh, but his uncle actually gave him the not so pretty one first. But he's married both of them and now he has 12 sons. And now God tells him, Jacob, it's time to go home. Uh, and you'll remember when he left home, Esau swore uh, that he would kill Jacob. So here it is as we come back into the Jacob story once again. As it seems to pop up in his story over and over again, there's a tension. And the tension is this. What about the blessing? That's where we end tonight. So let's read here Genesis 32, starting in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and go to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. That's a party right there, by the way. Um, sorry, I shouldn't interrupt with that. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. 
He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. And these are going to be the verses now. Verses 22 through 32 we're going to focus on tonight. The same night... He arose and took two of his wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray as we look into this. Father, as you've been so faithful to do, we ask you would do again tonight that you would open your word to us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe the life that you offer us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you without any context uh, to describe for me what meeting God would be like, I wonder what would come to your mind. And I wonder really what, like, what most naturally what comes to your mind when you think about the thought of meeting God. I wonder how you think you would come out of that meeting. What would you be like on the other side of that meeting? As we see here, Jacob meets God and he knows by the end of it that's what's happened. He walks away, but not without a limp. He rejoices but not before he despairs. He's strong, but not before he knows weakness like he's never known it in his life. Jacob has met God, but more than that, Jacob has been in the arms of God. So that's what I want to look at tonight. What Meeting God, wrestling God, and the blessing of God. Okay, First one is meeting God. So just again, to take in the context here. It's here, for the first time in Jacob's life, on the banks of this river, Jabbok, that God meets Jacob. It's here, as Jacob returns home, and he's returning home in obedience. God has told him to. It's here, as Jacob wonders what kind of home he's returning to. It's here, as Jacob fears for the lives of his wives and his children. It's here, that Jacob sees clearly, for the first time in his life, That he can no longer rely on himself. Because it's here 
that Jacob meets God. As one commentator put it, put it like this, God must take away the things that we have gained ourselves in order to give us what he has to give. That is what God meets Jacob with. Jacob, I've got to take away everything that you've relied on in your entire life in order for you to meet me truly. And what was it that Jacob had relied on his entire life? It was himself. He relied on his gifts, his, his, uh, his scheming, uh, his hard work, you name it. It was about him. That was his entire life. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, great movie, Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio in it. But it's a, it was about a, a real person, Frank Abagnale, who is the greatest check counterfeiter in U.S. history. Uh, I think it, it took place kind of mainly in the 50s, at least in the movie. But the thing about Frank Abagnale, he was more than just a check, uh, check counterfeiter. His entire life was a con. His entire life was a con. No matter where he went, no matter what he did, no matter who he met, he schemed and he manipulated. At one point, he dresses up in scrubs and enters an ER and everybody thinks he's a doctor and he acts like a doctor. Uh, He moves to Louisiana uh, and he falls in love with a judge's daughter and so he pretends to be a lawyer and even passes the bar on two weeks' notice. The key to Frank's life was making himself what he needed to be. He built his entire life, his entire counterfeit con life on who he could be. And he could be anything he wanted to be. And so he thought, right? That's Jacob. That really is Jacob. This is Jacob. He was the self-made man. The firstborn birthright. Well, I'll just trick my brother into giving it to me. The firstborn blessing. I'll just trick my father into giving it to me. Uh, Gorgeous Rachel. I'll do seven years hard labor. Oh no, I woke up with her ugly sister Leah. I'll do seven more years hard labor. And by the end of it all, really his story is kind of movie perfect at least. He's got the girl or girls. Um, He's rich and he has 12 sons. Having sons back then was like the biggest deal ever. He had 12 of them. Okay? He's made it. But the problem is, when you read through Jacob's story, and we saw the beginnings of this last time, is that he's left a wake of destruction with in almost everyone in his life that he's met and dealt with. And at this point, it's at this point, this is where God meets him. And I think you can kind of see this. It's where God meets him, and he's never the same. He's never the same. He's never the same, Jacob. And here it is. When we look at Jacob and we look at ourselves, this is what we see. The most deadly temptation that you will ever face in your life is the lie that you can be self-made. That is what Jacob had lived his entire life. And the most dangerous temptation, the most deadly temptation is believing that lie that you can be self-made. Just, tra- just trace that line with me just in the book of Genesis. That's the lie that Adam and Eve believed from the serpent. You can be self-made without God. It's the lie that Cain believed in the field as he hated his brother. It's the lie that the whole earth believed during the flood as everyone did what was right according to their own hearts. It was the lie that the citizens of Babel believed as they built a tower and they wanted to make a name for themselves. It was the lie that Abraham struggled with as he was trying to believe God's promises. You go forward in the Old Testament, it's the lie that Israel believes when they demand a king. We want to be a nation just like everybody else. It's the lie that David believed on that day on the rooftop when he saw a beautiful naked woman and said, you know what? I'm taking her as mine. 
is the lie that Nebuchadnezzar believed when he looked out over his kingdom and said, look at all I have built for myself. The most deadly temptation you will face in your life is the lie that you can be self-made. And here's the thing, to drive it home, I would suggest to you, I think I can back this up, it was the lie that Jesus most persistently and most consistently faced head on time and time again throughout his public ministry. This lie that you can be self-made. And the thing is, is we're all lying to ourselves if we try to tell ourselves that at the end of the day, this isn't our greatest struggle. In one way or another, this is all... Our entire culture, especially the culture of the university in our country, is built on this lie that you need to be what you need to be. And if you can't be it, it's your fault and you're a failure. That's what y'all live in. Y'all are swimming in that every day. And I know some of you feel the weight of it. And you want to believe that's true. So maybe you can forgive yourself a little bit, but you still find it so hard, don't you? Some of you may ask, you may think, Okay, well then what do I need to do? And the answer from this passage is, you need to meet God. Because when you look at the Bible, when you trace characters in the Bible, of all the characters that meet God, you will find that the first thing that gets burned away in an instant when you meet this God is any illusion of self-sufficiency. When you meet this God, it is not possible to believe that you are self-made. You actually feel like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. You say, I'm undone. I'm coming apart. Some of you, your time in college has been a cycle or maybe consistent time of just like a vague loneliness. You don't even know where it comes from. Maybe an emptiness or nagging wrongness that another bar or another party or another hookup or another relationship just doesn't seem to fix. Some of you, uh, others of you, you've known times in college of intense religion and intense times of growth, but now you find yourself at the end of another school year and you're just like, there's nothing that really does it consistently for me anymore. What am I doing wrong? Others of you, you've been around God, but the question still remains, have you actually ever really met Him? You come around here or there, but you actually have no idea that you've never met God. The good news for all of us is just like it was for Jacob. And the good news is this. God will meet you. But as you see where the story goes, when you do meet him, he might give you the fight of your life. Actually, you can pretty much bank on it. And that's just what happens. And he might just give you the fight of your life by ripping the rug of self-sufficiency that you've put under yourself right out from under you. And some of you look back on your time in college, whether it's your first year, whether it's your fourth or fifth year, right? And you see those times that you have fallen and maybe hit your head, figuratively speaking. And maybe now it starts to come together. It was those times when it was hard to believe that I was self-sufficient that hurt the most. Is that not right? And maybe it was God all along ripping that out from under you. Meeting God. There is no illusion of self-sufficiency, of being self-made when you meet this God. And that's what we see with Jacob here. Let's move on to the next thing. 
Because when he meets God, what actually immediately happens is he's wrestling with him. This is kind of weird, right? Uh, Jacob gets to wrestle with God. Um, and you look at verse 24. Jacob's alone. Uh, and it doesn't say a man showed up. It just says he was alone and a man wrestled with him. It's like, what a segue, right? Um, it's good literature. But a man wrestles with him, right? So Jacob has come all this way. He's prospered. He's even being obedient at this point. He's taken a windy path. But the reason I, I started back in verse 9 is you see that prayer in verse 10, right? He's at least showing us that he's learned something. Uh, he understands God is faithful. So he, he, he's gotten that God is with him and that God is blessing him, even though he doesn't deserve it. Um, he's here because God's told him to return home. But right before he gets there, God meets him and gives him the fight of his life. Here, not for the first and not for the last time, what we learn about this God is that he's not a tame God. And it's really funny, I made this joke in an RUF group meet earlier this week, and I forgot that it was in the sermon, but I'm going to roll with it. But in Chronicles of Narnia, right, uh, as the Pevensey children are trying to wrap their mind around who is this Aslan person that, make, that does all these things, right? They don't know who he is, and they don't even fully understand that he's a lion. And then they find out that he's a lion, and Lucy asks, is he quite safe? To which Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see... The thing is, we see God with Jacob here. We see God with people throughout the Bible and throughout history. God indeed meets Jacob time and again where he was in his story. But here's the thing that you also see in Jacob's story and other people's story. Is that God is never content to leave him where he is. God meets him where he is, but God is not going to let him stay there. That's the arc of Jacob's story. It's the arc of everyone's story that meets this God. It's what Paul's getting at, I think, in Philippians chapter 1, out of the gate of that letter to the church at Philippi, when he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God will meet you where you are, but He will not leave you there. He doesn't want to leave you there. This God is a God of grace. There's nowhere you can go that's beyond His reach, right? We think about the thief on the cross. A guy who says to his friend, look, we deserve to be here. That same thief finds himself in paradise, Jesus promises him. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, the self-righteous Pharisee who comes to Jesus in the night, dumbfounded at this teaching of a new birth, right? It's the same Nicodemus who brings 75 pounds of expensive ointment to embalm Jesus' body at the end of his life. And so we see just in two examples there, there's no amount of brokenness in the thief. There's no amount of self-righteousness in a guy like Nicodemus the Pharisee that can get you beyond this God's reach. He will meet you where you are, but He will never leave you where He found you. And if He has to, He will fight you for it. He will. And what Jacob learned that night is that God does not comfort us into a changed life. He fights us into it. He'll wrestle us into it. It's amazing. Look at verse 24. I love this. Um, I mean, I studied Hebrew in seminary, but don't ask me any opinions about it. But in verse 24, it literally says, a man came and Jacobed Jacob. 
Do you remember when Rebecca, his mother, was pregnant with Esau and Jacob? Um, and then when 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 Jacob was uh, when Esau was born first, um, Jacob was actually holding on to Esau's ankle as they came out of the womb. And so his name was Jacob, Jacob. He was called Jacob, which means wrestler or grasper or manipulator or schemer. This is everything that Jacob's been his entire life. And so you see on this night down by the river, Jacob took stock of his life. He looks over his life. He looks over his choices. He looks where he's been. He looks where he's come. He looks where he's going. He would have told you that his problem was that he tricked his father. That was a problem. He would have told you that his problem was that he tricked his brother. That was a problem. He would have told you that his problem was that he stole. He would have told you that his problem was now Esau because Esau wanted to kill him. But what you have to see at this point is that God comes to Jacob on this night and he says, Jacob, none of those things are your problem. Your problem is with me. That's what God's telling him. Your problem is the way that you've related to me. You, Jacob, for your whole life have been fighting with me, wrestling with me, Jacobing with me. And so I'm going to Jacob you back. And this is what Jacob had to realize. His problem in life was not that he needed the firstborn birthright. His problem was not that he needed the firstborn blessing. His problem was not that he just needed Rachel in his life. God comes and says, you're not wrestling Esau. You're not wrestling your father. You're not wrestling your uncle Laban. You've been wrestling with me until you understand that you can go no step further. The problem beneath all of your problems, Jacob, and all of us by implication, is that you have believed that you can be your own Lord and Master. And that's not how it works. All it will do is all that it's done your entire life. It will leave a wake of destruction the entire way. Guys, your computer, your phone, your iPad, your PlayStation, your Xbox, those things aren't your problem. You're fighting with God. You want comfort and you want pleasure when you want it. On your terms and on your time. You're fighting with God. Girls, you will deny your body food. You will run your body into the ground. Or you will give it away. Or you will busy your schedule with things I don't even know if you know what you're doing. Your problem is not those things. You're fighting with God because you want control. You want to be in control. And you don't want anybody else to have a say in it. Here's the thing. This is the most amazing thing. God loved Jacob. God promised that there would be blessing through Jacob. And he promised that before Jacob was even born, knowing who Jacob would be. And so God literally comes and hits Jacob on the head to break him of his pride and self-sufficiency. He physically comes and does that. Jacob thought it was Esau. He thought it was his transgressions. He thought it was this and that that would keep him from the promised land. And God says, none of those are things that are going to keep you from the promised land. Your reliance on yourself is going to keep you from the promised land. 
It's your belief that you are in control of your failures and successes. It's your belief that everything in this life will become only because of your own ingenuity or your own wit or your own hard work or your looks or whatever. It's your belief that you've made yourself who you are. And God says those things are so deadly to your soul. I will fight you for them if I have to. And again, it's funny, so many of you probably even still struggle with this in ways that you don't even think are applicable right now. Because some of you look at your life and you're so frustrated uh, because you're, you feel like you are more aware of your problems than anyone else. You know what your problems are and you cannot get out from under them, even though you try and you try and you try. And you wonder, God, why won't you just take it away? And you tell him, look, God, I know I can't handle this. I'm not trying to handle it. Please take it away. And you pray these prayers and you feel these feelings. And you think all the while God's ignoring you. But wouldn't it be beautiful if actually he's he's actually loving you? Because he's continually, daily driving you out of yourself and to him. He actually promises That because of that, you will actually be like him. Paul puts it like this. Paul encountered the same thing in his own life. And he recounts that for us in 2 Corinthians 12. He says three times. He's talking about a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. And he says three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. Now you got to think about this. This is Saul of Damascus, who became Paul, who Jesus himself appeared to him, kind of like Jacob, confronted him on a road and said, Saul, you got to stop persecuting me and my church and come and follow me. And Paul did it. And this is later on in Paul's life. He's built the church. He's preached the gospel. He's written these letters that we still pour over today for our own selves and our own edification, right? And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see what Paul says? He's pretty much saying God didn't take it away. But he helped me see that I didn't need him to take it away. I just needed him. Meeting God, wrestling with God, and so Jacob does, and so Jacob is wounded. But that's the beautiful part of the story. It's when he's wounded that it makes way for the blessing. So let's end with this, the blessing of God. It's by verse 28, I guess we could say. It's by verse 28 that, Jacob's, that Jacob gets it. But he kind of like asked the question, like, when was it? Like, when was the moment that Jacob gets it? And I would suggest to you it's verse 25. When we're told that the man touched his hip. Puts it out of joint. He injures him. Permanently. I'd say that is the moment when Jacob gets it. Because what Jacob realizes in that moment is that whoever this is could have instantly ruined me if he had wanted to. 
And suddenly, and here's the interesting part, it's at that point, Jacob doesn't want to let go. He realizes that whoever he's wrestling with could have ruined him, destroyed him, killed him in an instant. And it's at that moment that he realizes that he doesn't want to let go. Usually when someone attacks you, I don't, if you're anything like me, you like run really fast. But Jacob, when he's most vulnerable, when he's the most defenseless, he's changed. It's at that moment I would suggest to you he's a new person. And here it is. Jacob had been striving for the blessing his whole life. And what he realizes in an instant, face to face with God, is that the blessing was not what he needed. God was what he needed. And so he doesn't want to let go. I will not let go unless you bless me. It's like Jacob in that instant looks over his entire life and says, here is the approval that I so wanted from my father. Here uh, is the prestige that I was looking for from my brother. Here is the beauty that I went running after in Rachel. And here is the kindness that I wanted from my mother. But he says, no, you, you're the source. You're the source of all of it. And then verse 28 is fascinating to me. God, said, God looks at Jacob. Look at it. God has won the fight at this point, okay? I think it's safe to say. And he says, Jacob, you've been striving against men and God your whole life. So you know what? You win. You're like, wait a minute. What? Wasn't the whole point here to like maim him or something? You've been striving against men and God your whole life. You win. So the paradox, there's a paradox here. The paradox is that to the man who is completely powerless and holding on for dear life at this point, God says, you win. The paradox is that weakness is strength. The paradox is that defeat in this story is triumph. It's the grand paradox of the kingdom of God that has been unfolding from the beginning of time. It's repeated over and over and over again in the story for us as we read on into the future, into history, until finally the king of this kingdom himself showed up. And you know what he did? He made himself weak. Made himself Perfectly obedient even to the point of death. He wrestles with God his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says earnestly and honestly, if there is any other way, please remove this cup from me. Here's the thing. God doesn't just say no. And God doesn't just touch Jesus' hip. God crushed him. Put the full weight on him. He crushed him. Even so, even under the weight of that crushing, he clings to the Father to his very last breath when he says, Father, to you I commit my spirit. Why? (laughs) To secure the blessing. Not for himself. 
but for us. That's it. Look, if you, if you long to meet God, if you find yourself wrestling with God, maybe you don't think it's with God, maybe you think it's just with something, if you find yourself longing for blessing, if you keep coming back, how many ever more years you're here, if you grow up and have children and listen to my podcast, whatever, um, that'd be great. That was a weird example. Um, <laughs> there's nothing, I, I've struggled with this really as a minister in weird ways. But what I've realized and I've, I've tried to come to grips with, there really is nothing else I can do for you except say week after week after week, look at the cross because there's nothing else. If you don't go there first, there's nothing else. And the thing is, and you may not know what that means. You may not know how to do it. You may not think you're doing it well. And I'll just keep saying, look to the cross. Because what I know will happen at some point in God's time is if you keep looking there, I promise you're going to see something. You'll see that God doesn't reject you. God does not reject people because of their weakness. It's not in the equation. God does not reject people because of their failure. God does not reject people because they cannot measure up. No. He became weak. He became the failure. He let Himself be rejected. Why? Because He wanted to meet you. He wanted to come to you. He wanted to walk with you. He wanted to heal you. He wants to heal you. And here's the thing. He loves your dependence on Him so much that He will let everything that you have leaned upon to this point in your life fail you if that's what it takes. He'll let it happen. He will. And again, why would He do that? Because God doesn't want you. I, I don't know how long it took me to realize this, but it's so true. God doesn't want you to have a nice life. He wants you to have Him. That's it. But more than that, He wants to have you. That's the story. One Narnia quote, what's two, right? I'll leave you with this for the year, for your summer, for whenever. It's at the end of um, the voyage of the Dawn Treader as Lucy and uh, Edmund realize that they're not going to be coming back to Narnia anymore. And so they begin to weep. And this is what they say as a, in a conversation with Aslan. They say, it isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We won't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are you there too, sir, said Edmund. I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. I don't know where you are tonight. But I do know with 100% certainty that wherever you are, God has brought you there at this very moment. It's a sure thing. And the promise is, wherever that is, 
I may be able to sympathize and empathize with it. I may not be able to. But I do know that wherever that is, the story in it for you is that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And so I just ask you as we wrap up the semester, have you met this God? It might be a fight. It just might be. But it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we do long to meet you, to know you, to have you, to behold you, Father, to feel you. And you've promised us just that, and you've given it to us. As distant as you may, as distant as you may seem, as absent, absent as sometimes it seems as you are, you've promised us again and again that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we pray, would you open our eyes to it once again? Would we know it? Would we see it? Would we believe it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.